You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Let them go. Chapter 2 Little Drops of Water Eleven years ago, at the end of a winding track through a forest in Cornwall, stood Ravenwood House. It took a day by rail and horse-drawn carriage for the Wolvertons to reach, and the house itself represented blessed relief. Within the confines of the vehicle, it was impossible for the children to play with any of their favourite toys. The football, the marbles, the stick and hoop, the spinning top and skipping rope all required space and stability, and the persistent click, clack, noise and motion of the cup and ball became swiftly unbearable for fellow passengers, causing it to be confiscated almost immediately. This meant that the journey was always only ever made up of four things. Firstly, attempting to read until the jiggling motion of the carriage brought on nausea. Secondly, attempting to abate this by staring out of the window at the British countryside rolling past. Thirdly, bored by this inactivity, amusing oneself with the deliberate prodding and goading of one's siblings both mentally and physically, in a bid to start an entertaining scuffle, and finally being pulled apart by one's parents and made to sing a song. The singing would go on for several minutes until both adults deeply regretted their decision, principally because nearly all of the songs the children knew were nursery rhymes. They would thus dissuade their offspring by suggesting they read a book, and the cycle would begin anew. Charles grew in long, wispy, blonde mutton chops a good deal earlier than he needed to, seemingly in a hurry to appear established and respectable. He was habitually stern and eminently practical, but given to fits of kindness, often at unexpected times, which meant he was impossible to write off as only a grim taskmaster, yet simultaneously unwise to exercise childishness around in case this was not one of his agreeable days. If he had an overriding fault, it was that his milky blue eyes were unreadable. His wife, Jane, smelled of lavender and biscuits, she had dark hair and brown eyes like Rebecca, and the kind of lightness of spirit that spread around the room. She was sweet-natured and generous with her time, though she was prone to fixation on an idealised confluence of events and fits of fretful melodrama should others see things differently. And so it went, with a purgatorial absence of energy, until they finally drew into the forest around Ravenwood and the excitement began to build. When the house was reached, Aunt Cleo and Uncle Matthew were enthusiastically embraced for as long as the children could stand upright upon their shaking legs. Matthew was tall and lean with a straw-coloured beard and a habit of speaking to everyone in the same serious, respectful manner, regardless of age. He could play the guitar in an unassuming way and was the best person to take with you on long walks. Cleo, her face framed with glossy chestnut hair, was elegant and refined, with a manner of smile which always made you wonder what she was really feeling. Outwardly it was gracious, but her greenish hazel eyes occasionally seemed far away. The children thought she was a little strange, for they had seen her repeatedly assisting Elsie, the housemaid at Ravenwood, with her tasks, often bidding the girl rest while Cleo herself completed them. It was an enigmatic benevolence which they found appealing nonetheless. When their relations had been greeted and afternoon tea had been quickly guzzled, the traditional ritual of shucking the lion's share of one's Sunday best was engaged in, 
much to the consternation of all present adults, as the Wolverton children dove off in the direction of the woods. The journey was over. Their penance paid. The play could begin. Back home in Bristol, they were used to winding, muddy streets flanked with narrow, gaunt, four-storey buildings. But here, in the Cornish forest, lay a paradise for young explorers. They scrambled up steep, tall, multi-levelled banks, weaving among the thickets over mottled slabs of rock and under the miniature archways of fallen boughs, replete with pungent fungus. Gargantuan old trees had been torn to the ground in storms, revealing their tangled, muscular roots at right angles to gaping holes in the earth. Everywhere in the woods, animals and birds would start at the noise of encroachment and scurry away to their dank, hidden holes. The children had learned after a time to step carefully, looking this way and that, absorbing themselves into the environment so that they might have a better chance of spotting the life that dwelled within. Busy squirrels in the canopy cocking their little heads, the beady eyes of foxes at dusk, the flash of a rabbit's tail. On this particular September evening in 1861, ten-year-old Rebecca was searching for that most elusive of woodland creatures, the badger. Rebecca was fond of mathematics and problem-solving, keen to investigate avenues denied to her, partially out of curiosity and partially out of contrarian stubbornness. Can we play hide-and-seek? hollered Timothy, picking his way along behind her. He was a thin boy of eight with a chestnut mop on his head, fond of Toffee and his puppy Jack Robinson. He had left this mischievous beagle in the care of their housemaid back in Bristol, as last year's attempt to bring the canine on multiple moving vehicles had met with chaos and a quick return. Whisper, we're in a forest. Amanda reproached behind him. The trees don't want to hear your shouting. Timothy was an unfailingly serious child. His round, open face looked back at their younger sister with an expression of quizzical apprehension. He glanced at the trees themselves, warily, as though expecting them to spring to life and turn on him, holding twig fingers to their wooden lips, brows of bark furrowing. It wasn't exactly fear he was gripped by. That would have been more primal and naturally would have caused him to want to leave. Instead, it was an instant and sober estimation of the realities of living trees. He surmised on the spot that they could not chase him because of their deeply nested roots, but that he must be respectful or else get an angry branch in the face. It was the same with the locomotive of the train they had travelled down to Cornwall on. Amanda had confided in him that each one of these was in fact an iron prison housing a dragon, whose steaming nose and puffing breath he could clearly see and hear. He decided that dragons ate an inordinate amount of coal, Hence their lunch had to be carried along behind them, and the clever human engineers had worked out how to make the beasts pull many travellers in exchange for their vast meals. So Timothy knew dragons existed, he knew his train was pulled by one, and he knew to steer his family along the station platform and into the final carriage, to keep as far away from that fiery prisoner as possible. He knew it with that certainty that only exists in children. Can we play hide-and-seek? He repeated in a much lower voice. I found a good place, remarked Amanda, who at seven years old was mercurial and prone to getting tipsy on the small amount of influence she had discovered she was capable of. It's somewhere we've seen today already. That's a clue. Her hair had been a lighter shade of blonde back then, and she had spent a sizable portion of her time with her nose in a book. 
For some reason, she was the only one who didn't feel halfway near as ill when reading in a carriage, and frequently used that to her advantage. Timothy considered this, and pointed at Rebecca. She has to find us, he said with utter solemnity. It's already past five, their elder sister counted. We can play hide-and-seek tomorrow. But we're going to church tomorrow, Timothy reposted. And if it rains in the afternoon, we shan't be allowed out at all. Rebecca turned and scrunched up her mouth. Amanda saw an end to the fun imminent and fluttered her lashes impudently. Do you think you're getting a bit old for games? She crooned. In response, a broad grin crossed Rebecca's face. The other two bounced with excitement as she closed her eyes and began to count. Sixty, fifty-nine, <laughs> fifty-eight, fifty-seven. She started at sixty, an unusually long amount of time for them, but last year's hunt had been such a joyful and exciting one, and she had actively encouraged them to switch hiding places while she sought them out in order to further fox her. Rebecca wasn't necessarily the quickest at finding the others. She was simply the most entertaining at the task, striding around the wood theatrically, talking to herself so that they could hear her innermost thoughts. I wonder if Amanda has climbed a tree again. So very like her to choose a traditional spot for me. Timothy can't be nearby. He hasn't had a bath in a week because he's afraid he'll be thrown out with the bath water. Thus I'd surely be able to smell his malodorous feculence by now. And so forth. Soon her comments would elicit a giggle from one of them and she would draw close and intensify the theatrics. I'm getting tired now. <laughs> I may go back to Aunt Cleo and ask for your share of the jam tart, since you're clearly not hungry. Eventually one of them would squeak peevishly at the idea of such an unjust liberty, and she would chase them and catch them, and they would team up to find the remaining hider. This was what happened that day. Rebecca crept down to the rope swing, hanging from the enormous hornbeam tree which grew out over an eroded craggy pit. There was a long way to fall from the smooth branch that had been tied to the base of the rope, and the children had tumbled off it several times and come home limping or with nasty scrapes. Far from being dissuaded, however, this brought them back time and again to conquer the art of swinging. Rebecca had brought a blanket to lay down in the crag at the place they always seemed to fall. She had subsequently received a scolding for the filthy state of said blanket, though in her words it had saved her life, so it was worth the reprimand. Beside the hornbeam stood a bower, a small, rudely constructed shelter made of branches that they had pulled together two years previously. It had proved a wonderful retreat over those past summers, and Rebecca knew that Amanda was now inside. She popped her head down into the opening and said with practised aloofness, Far too easy. Amanda squealed. How did you guess? I know your mind like a favourite book. You mentioned the bower twice on the travel down, and then not at all once we got here. Well then, let's find him, then you can hide and I'll seek. Amanda suggested, impressed with her sister's deductive reasoning. Rebecca straightened up and a single drop of rain landed on her cheek. Ugh. She groaned and thought of the trouble they would land in if they came home damp, even in only their underlayer of clothes. It began with annoyance of a familiar and bothersome sort. Immediately after this, she worried that Timothy might catch cold while they were out here. Best to find him. Let's go and locate that cunning little brother of ours, she said loudly to Amanda. He's definitely better at concealing where he's going to hide than his sister. And they looked. They went up by the stream. They climbed the tallest hill. 
they went back down in the other direction. They strayed very far over towards the eastern edge of the forest, to the site of an old, dilapidated farmhouse. The Stacys had lived there up until a few years ago, but Cleo had told the children they had moved away. Yet here the farm stood, unused and empty. The rain had begun to spatter down hard now. Both the girls were uncomfortably wet. Rebecca realised she suddenly had three choices. Search the farm, go back through the forest, or return to the house for reinforcements. She was momentarily pinned to the spot. Tim! She shouted. We have to go now, it's raining! Tim! Timothy! Timothy! Shouted Amanda, as helpfully as she could. They listened. There was no sound from the farmhouse. As if in answer, the rain intensified, accompanied by a roll of thunder. Rebecca thought quickly. This weather meant the grown-ups would already be prompted to search for them outside, so that eliminated the need for the third option. If Timothy was somewhere in the farm, there was a chance he would be in the house, which was more sheltered than the forest, despite big holes in the thatched roof. He might cut himself on all of those sharp things. Rebecca bolted back towards the forest. If he was in the farmhouse, he might be safe. If he went back home, he would definitely be safe. If he did neither of those things, he would be in the forest, hiding, congratulating himself upon his success. Amanda gave chase as they slipped and scurried through the mud. Rebecca could no longer hear over the percussive din of the shower, and water kept getting in her eyes so she would have to rely on instinct. He was not in any of the spots she had found him on previous occasions. She whirled on Amanda. Do you know where he might be? I... no. We should have found him. Wait, wait, think. You said you'd chosen a place we'd seen today. And I did. We walked past the hornbeam on the way up. But Timothy might have taken that to his advantage and gone somewhere we definitely hadn't already walked. We've wasted our time going over old ground. Rebecca shouted. She ignored the fact that they had trekked all the way over to the Stacy farm and chastised herself bitterly as they reached the babbling stream in the western side of the forest, its waters now dark, reflecting the angry clouds above. She turned to Amanda. You have to get back. Get help. Get everyone to look for him. I'll stay out here. You have to come back too, though. Please don't get lost. Without a word, Rebecca turned back and crossed the stream, not caring a jot for how the cold water splashed up over her calves. Tim! You've won every game of hide-and-seek from now on until forever. Just please come out. The woods around her said nothing. She craned her head into hollows and pits, staring into treetops, spun around straining her ears for his voice. She heard her father and Uncle Matthew in the distance, calling for Tim and for her. She did not answer. She would not until she found him. Rebecca wandered in the rain, now crying, desperate to rest, aching to collapse. Her tears began hot, but as soon as they met her shivering cheeks, she could no longer feel them. And then she saw him. An arm, clad in a soaked, dirty white shirt sleeve, trailing out of the inside of a hollowed-out log, lying under a sheet of ivy. She slipped as she lurched towards him, calling out as she did. He's here! And praying to God and Mary and Jesus that when she reached the opening of the log, she would see him smiling, his tongue poking out, enacting a victory dance. Instead, he was slumped over, his eyes closed, his skin pallid. His lips had taken on a shade of faint blue, but he was alive. 
Every scrap of clothing, every visible patch of skin was sodden through. She could see how to begin with as the rain started. Staying in here might have seemed a sensible option. It appeared to offer shelter. The water pooling at the other end had run down the log until he wound up lying in a filthy puddle, too cold and wet to move. But it would have been a slow degradation of his faculties, not a sudden shock that he might have been able to react to. As soon as Rebecca put her hands on the thin chest, Timothy's sunken eyes opened, rimmed with dark shadows, and he shook violently, grabbing at her with his other hand. There was pleading in those eyes, and panic. I found you! was all she could say. Rebecca was faintly aware of her father and uncle approaching, and as Charles pushed her aside and wrenched the boy free, she could see her brother smiling weakly. Timothy was confined to the master bedroom, the warmest in Cleo's house. He was bathed and bundled up in bed, and a doctor was called. Rebecca and Amanda were not permitted to see him, but hung around the corridors and stairwell nonetheless. They were sent to bed after supper, but as they lay in the dark they could hear the boy in the next room. A deep, wet cough, persistent to agonising. Every sound jammed at the pair of them. They did not sleep a wink that night and he did not stop coughing. The girls were taken to church in the morning, and Amanda fell asleep with her head against Rebecca's shoulders. Cleo had whispered to some of the parishioners, and the looks the pair of them got were of pity as the news travelled around the echoing hall. Rebecca distinctly heard the word pneumonia, and shuddered at its utterance. She prayed and prayed and prayed for Timothy to get well, articulating to Jesus the specificity of his innocence and good character. This had been her fault, and he must not be punished. Back at Ravenwood House, as they got through the front door, they listened for the sound of coughing, but heard none. Uncle Matthew sat by the fire with two bags of treacle toffee, beckoning them to sit. He's sleeping at the moment, said Cleo. Will he get better? asked Amanda. The doctor doesn't know. He might be lucky, she replied gravely, offering the girls the two paper bags of sweets. Rebecca thought of the prayers she had conducted with Jesus and felt a tiny thrill of safety. He knew now. He loved children. The doctor said Timothy might be lucky. That meant he would be lucky. Rebecca popped a toffee in her mouth and closed her eyes thankfully. Timothy passed away the next evening. Neither sister had been allowed to see him in his sickbed. Such was the threat of infection. The last meetings they had were in the forest. Aunt Cleo's house was very quiet. Only the fire rumbling away in the corner had anything to say. Their mother held the girls tightly as they wept. Their father was a ghost, a shadow in the hall. For the ride back, an additional coach was called for. Rebecca and Amanda watched a small shape, swaddled in white blankets, being carried out to the second carriage, shortly before their father boarded it. He would not speak to them at any stop on the ride, or for a week after they had returned to Bristol. Timothy was buried in their family plot, 
a small coffin lowered into the hole in the ground. Appropriately, it was raining. More than a decade later, Rebecca and Amanda stood on the same spot in an aged cemetery, beside a crumbling Saxon church, opposite the old cloistered priory with its scattered miniature processions of whispering nuns. The ground around them was uneven, rough and hilly. Slabs leaned this way and that, like the broken teeth of subterranean giants. One larger gathering off to one side had lettering which faintly accounted for the passing of the stones remembered during the years of the Black Plague. Others were so old they could no longer be read by the living. And Amanda's favourite in one corner bore the skull and crossbones of a pirate. Rebecca studied her brother's lichen-dotted stone as their father was placed in the ground beside him. He had been considerably more present before Tim had gone, but afterwards Egypt, the Sudan, India, all beckoned to him with the call of business. For him, it was the solitary pursuit in life he had seemingly always wanted. For them, the absence of both brother and father. And now it was over, with just one thing left to attend to before their lives could proceed. You have been listening to the New Century Multiverse. Let Them Go, Episode 2, Little Drops of Water. Written, narrated, and directed by Alexander Shaw. Rebecca Wolverton, performed by Sharon Shaw. Amanda Wolverton, performed by Theo Lee. Timothy Wolverton, performed by Lyra Shaw. Aunt Cleo, performed by Loretta Saylor. Music, including Winter Chimes, Long Note 2, and Vanishing, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes provided by Tabletop Audio. The production of New Century is funded by you guys on Patreon, and our special $15 sponsors get name-checked each week, so a huge extra thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, and Lorraine Chisholm. And this show hasn't had an iTunes review since early 2017 on the USA store and late 2016 in the UK store. 
So if you enjoyed the beginning of this new series, maybe jump on there and tell the world that you're excited to see where we're going. We shall see you next week, back in the present, as the adult Amanda and Rebecca return to Ravenwood. <laughs>